0: Let me invite you this morning to take your Bible, make your way to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter number one. Jonah chapter number one. We are uh, preaching and teaching through this book, uh, coming through it verse by verse. That is what we call expositional preaching. And I certainly think that um, that is a, a great method in which we come through the word of God and see what God says in the context in which he's given it and and learn from the book the best. And And I pray that it will bless you as we come through the book of Jonah. Jonah is a very familiar story and account and narrative. And um, we often know of Jonah just by the uh, story of him being swallowed by the fish, right? But there's so much more to Jonah uh, throughout the whole narrative from chapter 1 to chapter 4 that we can glean. And so we're going to be looking this morning at verse 4 down through verse number 6. Verse 4 down through verse number 6 of Jonah 1. And I've titled the message this morning, Divine Intervention on a Rebel Prophet. Divine Intervention on a Rebel Prophet. And so let's begin reading in verse number four. The Bible says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought or give a thought to us that we may not perish. Have you ever had anyone intervene into your life? for your good. We've probably all experienced that from someone in one way or another. Perhaps you're about to make a bad decision or go down a bad road and somebody cares for you recognized it, gave you warning, gave you correction, gave you instruction about that. Perhaps someone intervened to help you in a time of need uh, by giving you something or being there for you. We've all had people who have intervened into our life in one way or another, and most, most interventions are indeed for our good. And we often need that intervention. But what we see here in the life of Jonah is not someone intervening that is physically in his life, although there is an intervention happening. This intervention isn't like someone giving us a little help or a little protection or a little uh, guidance in something. The intervention we look at here is divine intervention from Almighty God. God is intervening into the life and narrative of Jonah for a specific purpose. And this intervention is corrective. It is disciplinary in nature. Now why does this intervention come? Just to recap, we saw last week in the message on the runaway prophet that Jonah was called by God to rise, go to Nineveh, and preach against it. Why was he to do this? Because of the evil, because of the wickedness of Nineveh that had come up before God, and God has ordained that Nineveh hear of their impending judgment that was coming to them. But what did Jonah do? We did not read that Jonah rose up and ran to Nineveh. We read that Jonah rose up and fled he went down to Joppa got on a ship headed to Tarshish and Tarshish by the way is 2500 miles west of the direction Jonah was supposed to go he gets on this ship and he decides he's going to try and flee from the presence of the Lord twice we read in verse 2 that Jonah sought to flee from the presence of the Lord Now, he was not trying to attempt to leave the omnipresence of God, for he was a prophet. He knew who God was. He knew that God was all present. There's nowhere you can go to escape the presence of God. But what Jonah did have in mind was, I'm going to go somewhere so far away that maybe the one true God isn't really well known. Maybe if I go this far away, God will maybe recuse this call to me to go to Nineveh and I can just leave it all behind. He thinks that if he can get there, if he can get disconnected from God's people, from God's land, he'll no longer have to be the prophet that's called to go to Nineveh. So we kind of picture this scene for a moment. Picture Jonah's departure. He goes down to Joppa. He buys his ticket to get on the ship, just like any of us would, getting on a plane or a cruise or whatever. He gets on board, finds his place, gets comfortable and he's ready for the ship the ship departs out of the port of Joppa and little by little the land of Israel fades into the distance and all seems well for Jonah he's on his Mediterranean cruise and he thinks it's going to be just fine wrong wrong boy was he wrong it seems all will be well But little did Jonah know that God would not allow him to go in his own direction. A divine intervention is soon going to be experienced by Jonah, but not only by Jonah, by everyone else that is with him. Now here I want to point out to you a few points from the text, and we'll make application at the end. Number one this morning, I want you to see the intervention of the storm, because that's what God uses to intervene in the life of Jonah at this particular point. The intervention of the storm. Notice a couple things about this storm that is significant for us to see. The storm had a specific purpose behind it. It had a specific purpose as to the very reason this storm is happening. If you look in verse 3, we read in in Jonah's reaction, we see, But Jonah. God gave Jonah the command, but then we read, but Jonah. But Jonah is a turning point. It shows us Jonah, he's not going to do what God's called him to do. He's going to do something different. He's obstinate, he's stubborn, he's rebellious. And when we look at Jonah doing this, let us ask, is God okay with such actions? Is he just going to slide such direct disobedience under the rug and perhaps let it go? No, he's not. This brings us to another but statement that is going to show us another transition, another important point in the narrative. In verse 4, what do we read? These first three words, but the Lord. But the Lord. You know, we see that often through scriptures. But God. But the Lord. And every time you read that, there's a, a significant point that is made, a transitional point in the truth being conveyed. We ought to be grateful for this very transition that we see. We think about some examples just for, your, just, for, just for encouragement this morning. Joseph was betrayed and sold into Egypt by his brothers. In Acts 7 and verse 39 we read, But God was with him. But God. What a horrible thing to happen to Jonah. But God was with him. Joseph experienced evil from all of this. But he said later in Genesis 20... But God meant it for good to bring about the salvation of his people from the famine. The psalmist said in Psalm 73, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We're thankful for that, aren't we, church? Paul described how depraved and dead and lost mankind was. In Ephesians Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But then in verse 4 we see a transitional statement. But God, but God rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. How many of us are thankful for these but God transitions of truth? We should be. And here we find another one. Now, in Jonah's case, it may not seem so good at first, but it actually is for Jonah's good. When the Lord, when you're when looking at the transition of this text, what do you find? You find that the Lord specifically is acting upon Jonah's life direction in a way that is not so pleasant. In a way that you and I would probably rather not experience. We read in verse, verse number 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. Now, we think about storms and weather and nature. Storms come and go in our world. Some storms are minor. Some storms are major. Some storms maybe have are just ordinary and nothing peculiar about them. Then there's other that maybe have a, a very unique effect in, in what happens through them. But when we look at this particular storm, it is not an ordinary storm. Understand from this text that this storm is sovereignly set by God as a means of judgment and correction to Jonah. This storm is of God's control and purpose and power. Why? Because of Jonah's stubborn. Rebellion in his attempt to run from God and his command. You know, as we evaluate this narrative, there are two wills at war with each other here. There is the revealed will of God, which shows this. Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh. That's God's revealed will for Jonah. Then there's Jonah's sinful and stubborn will that says, God, no, I'm going to Tarshish. Go in the other direction, not go on your way. Now, as you look at these two wills at war with each other, which one do you think will have their way in the narrative? (laughs) Which one do you think will have their way in the story of Jonah? Job rightly said this. It's a great principle for us to know and understand. He says to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We don't use the word thwarted a whole lot, but what does it mean? It means to be prevented or altered, right? Job is saying that no purpose of the Lord can be prevented. If the Lord wants Jonah to go to Nineveh, guess what's going to happen? Jonah is going to go to Nineveh. Jonah is going to go to Nineveh. Now, we often think that God would never have us do something against our will. Tell that to Jonah. Tell that to Jonah. You see, God is not bound by the sinful will of man, men and what happens in this world. God is not bound by man's will in any way from accomplishing his superior and perfect will that he has purpose. He knows how to correct, change, and convert our wills. And I'm thankful for that, Christian, because if he didn't do that, none of us would be saved today. Your will before you came to know Christ was obstinate. You did not want Christ. Your will was no to Jesus, no to the gospel. But God in his sovereign grace reached down by his word, by his spirit, and brought conversion to your heart, birthed you anew, giving you an entirely change of heart. A different kind of will. A will that's aligned with him. He granted you faith to believe. You see, Jonah may may have given his resignation as God's prophet, but God does not accept his resignation. He's not accepting it. The storm is God's tool of judgment as a means of correcting Jonah. Now, we often think of storms in a very metaphorical sense, don't we? We call our trials a storm, our afflictions a storm, our hardships or anything unpleasant in this world. We say, well, this is a, a storm in my life. Now, let me make something clear to us today. Willful and unrepentant disobedience towards God will always be followed by a storm. Willful and unrepentant, key words, disobedience towards God will always be followed by a storm. Now, don't mistake me. This doesn't mean that every storm in our life is a result of sin. Sometimes storms are just there to test our faith and grow us in our faith. Part of God's perfect providence in developing us and bringing us where we need to be. But the Bible is very clear that sin will always bring you great difficulty and hardship, especially if you are a child of God. Because as a child of God, you're a child of the Holy Heavenly Father. One, we have the Word of God and we ought to know better. Two, we're accountable to that Heavenly Father. Imagine my children coming in here and acting like heathens in this place. Don't say nothing. You've probably seen it happen already. <laughs> but, but imagine they kind of just go overboard. They begin drawing on the walls, jumping over the pews, flipping things over, stealing your purpose, purses, all these sorts of things. And I just watched it happen and thought, that's no big deal. They're just kids. They're just having fun, right? I just let all of that happen. As a father, what's my responsibility with rebellious, rambunctious kids like my own. Correct them. Correct them. If they're doing something that is dangerous and going to be detrimental to them, you intervene in their life. Spurgeon has this idea, this this fetish with, with wanting to always, as soon as the door opens to the outside, he's gone. Well, our front door, if you know where we live, we're not too far from a pretty busy road. So as soon as that door opens, he darts out and he tries to run towards the road. What kind of parent would I be if I did not run and chase him and snatch him from going to the road? Fathers protect their children and guide their children and watch over their children and correct their children. And did you know that this is how God deals with his people because his people are their children, are his children. They are His spiritual children and He is our Heavenly Father. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves Him whom He loves as a father the Son in whom He delights. Now understand this, Christian. If you decide to run from God and live in rebellion and disobey and just disregard Him, if you really know Christ and you just want to disregard it all, don't be surprised when a storm enters your life. And God is using something to get your attention. He can bring a storm on your finances, on your health, on your ambitions, on anything else that you name in this world. God can pluck it away from you. He knows how to get your attention. He disciplines His people. You see, the storm came on the sea in that location at that time because a rebellious Jonah is fleeing God's will on that ship to Tarshish. Now, Jonah probably thought that all was fine with God in this decision. After all, I mean, it was so easy to go down there and get the ticket, get on the boat. I mean, he didn't have a flat tire on the way or anything weird happened that we read of. He's probably thinking, well, things are going pretty smoothly. This is probably just fine. God will get somebody else to go to Nineveh. It was the opposite. And bear this in mind, I like this quote from William Banks. He says, when a person decides to run from the Lord, Satan always provides complete transportation facilities. In other words, Satan's more than ready to make it easy for you to go the wrong direction. In fact, that's usually how it starts. Something that looks like an easy step towards this direction or that direction that's away from God, and there you go. There you go. Do not mistake that for the Lord's approval of your disobedience because it looks like you have a clear path. This storm proves otherwise for Jonah because it has a specific purpose. It is directed at him. But notice with me, letter B, that this storm not only was it specific in its purpose, but it had a special power with it. Now, what's fascinating about this storm is the nature in which it comes. The storm here, understand, it wasn't on the radar. It wasn't predicted to cross their path. Now, today we're blessed with technology and Different things that help us get, I'm going to call, an educated guess at what the weather's going to do. Because the weatherman has often been found to be a liar, right? Promises a week of cool days, and it's still hot like the Sahara. I mean, it, we get mad at the weatherman. But there's some big things that we can see. You look at the news right now, you see big storms forming on the Atlantic, hurricanes and such, and there's, 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 there's advanced warning about these things, Right? But even long ago, a skilled sailor had some idea about incoming weather, just by natural natural understanding. They've been on the sea long enough. They they can tell when the weather's going to get bad and this is going to happen. But what do we notice about this storm? We read in verse 4 that the Lord did with the storm. The Bible says he hurled this storm. He hurled it. What's it mean to hurl? The word hurled here means to throw far, to be hurled down. The word for hurled is is used elsewhere of throwing a javelin. And I put this example in your notes is that when King Saul tried to kill David. You remember how he tried to kill David? David was playing the harp for King Saul. And what did King Saul do? He hated David. He wanted him dead because David was the rightful next king. He took up a javelin and he hurled it at David. He threw it with with force, with might, with with trying to be precise, right? Right? That's what happens when you hurl something, you throw something with power. And God here, understand, he has targeted Jonah's ship with a powerful storm and God always hits where oh, God always hits where he aims. God doesn't ever miss. He doesn't miss what he aims at. Say, well, can the Lord really do this? The weather? I mean, such a powerful part of creation. Understand, he who created all things can control all things. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. You think about who it is that really controls the weather and all that we see in our world. It's Almighty God. He created them, He set them in their place. In an opposite scenario, we see Jesus, the God man, manifesting his power over the storms on the sea in his ministry. Matthew 8, 27 says, The men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey Him? They were in a storm, tossed, fearful for their lives. Jesus got up and said, Peace be still, and all was calm. All He had to do was speak. And that was it. But what do we read in our text? Verse 4, This storm is no average storm on the sea. It's a great. It brought, there was a great wind that brought a mighty tempest. And what is this storm doing in verse 4? The Bible says that it's so powerful that the ship threatened to break up. The wooden ship. Now, ships back in that day, they weren't near as durable as ships of today, but they still were, there were still some strong ships made. Henry Morris comments on the ships of Tarshish, he says, they were strong and sturdy vessels of the Phoenicians, the leading mariners of the ancient world. This was their livelihood. They were always out on the sea. But what ship is so tough that it can withstand the power of God? None. We even have reference to the Lord breaking up the ships of Tarshish. In Psalm 48, 7, by the east wind, you, the Lord, shattered the ships of Tarshish. There's nothing that can overcome the power of God. Do any of us ever do any of us recall what the builder of the Titanic said about his mighty ship? Thomas Andrews, he was, he was inspired to build a ship that would be legendary during his time. And after the construction of the mighty Titanic, that British luxury ship, a reporter asked him how safe the Titanic would be. And his response was this. Even God himself couldn't sink the ship. We all know who that turned out, don't we? You see, Jonah is confident that the ship is going to get him all the way to Tarshish. But how greatly his confidence is misplaced. How greatly that happens to us. Because you understand that in disobedience we become proud and pride, pride always makes us blind and dumb. That's, its rea- that's what it does to us. It blinds us from seeing reality. Especially in the spiritual lens we need to see. Job said, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? The answer is no one. So when God is at work, it doesn't matter how much confidence you might have, it's misplaced. God's intervention always succeeds. And he intervenes with this storm upon Jonah. But notice with number two, we see the next aspect of this narrative. And a couple things I want to point out to you with it. We see the reaction of the sailors. The reaction of the sailors, I bring this up because it's going to tie into the bigger picture and application from Jonah because the reaction of the sailors provides really a contrast to all believers in the world in one way notice three reactions from them first one is the sailors reacted emotionally with fear that was a given how would you expect the sailors to react on a ship in the midst of a mighty storm well when we think about sailors have they not ever sailed in the sea on a storm of course they had now one thing that you want when you go out to sea and a storm comes through and the waves get rough is that the captain and the crew they're reassuring to you and comforting you that it's all okay i've been on one cruise in my life and it's pretty fascinating thing you get out there in the middle of the ocean and there's no land inside and you kind of feel how small you are that all of your life depends on this ship we've had some storms come through nothing huge But I've seen some storms in video I didn't experience where the cruise ship was rocking back and forth and even the crew was trying to hang on to things, right? That'll make you not want to get on one again. I still might do it someday if the Lord provides that, but still, the danger, the danger of that. You think about the fear that comes along with that. Now now understand, these are skilled sailors. It didn't matter how skilled these sailors were, though, because their reaction tells us everything. In verse 5, what do we read? Then the mariners were what? They were afraid. You know, skilled sailors are not typically afraid of just your casual storm that comes on the ocean or on the sea. This storm actually cuts to them. This storm actually has them shaking in their boots. They were frightened. This must have been a harsh storm. And why are they afraid? Because of what's happening. Notice this, the ship Threatened to break up. Can you imagine being on an old ship like that that's made of wood and you're in the midst of a storm and you hear it creaking and cracking and wood snapping in different places? Can you imagine hearing that? Now, there's a reason they should be afraid. Because if the ship breaks up and no longer can float, what's that mean for them? They're stranded in the middle of nowhere in the sea most likely going to die their 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 lives are at stake they're headed to the grave in the water now what's the central fear here for them their fear is the fear of death you understand the fear of death resides in every person one way or another some try to deny it some ignore it some try to just avoid thinking about it altogether because well it's inevitable and i'm not ready for it i don't want to know Some use various coping methods to cope with fear of death. But it's a universal reality for all people, especially for the lost, unregenerate world. Why is that? Because most people don't have a clue what happens after death, and they're not ready for death. Only one life you get in this world. And once you die, that's it, and you're headed on to eternity. And most people don't have a clue what's coming after that. They fear death. Now, it's a little different for the perspective of the believer in Christ. Why is that? Because we know what happens after death. We know to whom we belong. We know whom we have believed in. There is assurance of salvation in Christ Jesus the Lord. Here's what the Hebrew author said in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He, being Christ Himself likewise took part of the same things, meaning he took on flesh. Here's why. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, before we knew Christ, death gripped us like a piece of iron, like iron shackles. But it's not that way anymore. Now... While no believer desires to die soon, we at least have assurance of the truth where we're going. These sailors, they don't have that assurance. They're afraid because this storm is threatening their one and only life in this world. Here's a question for you if you're sitting in this room do you have assurance? If you died today, if today is the last day that you get to live, do you really know what's going to happen to you? Are you actually saved? Do you know Christ alone by faith alone? If you died this moment, you took your last breath, would you enter into the presence of Jesus? Or would you suffer the judgment for your sins in hell? Every one of us needs to have assurance, one way or another, and we can have that through the Scriptures and the Word of God. So the sailors here, they react emotionally by fear, which is, which is typical. But notice letter B, the sailors reacted physically by, by trying to discard the cargo. They're trying to get rid of things, right? So the storm's threatening to break up the ship. In verse 5 we read, They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. That's the next step in trying to save their life. They throw overboard everything that they could get rid of, their equipment, their their, their substance that they were transporting. One commentator says it was likely a great deal of cargo that they threw overboard. The whole purpose of such ships was to convey goods from one place to another. So the mariners were throwing over not only their possessions, but also their profit. See, when it all comes down to this, life and death, if in a life-death situation, what good is all your possessions and profit if you lose your life? That stuff don't matter anymore, does it? Most people would trade anything physically in this world, material, for their life. Satan said this about testing Job. He said, he answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. There's some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Because most people give up everything just to live in the world. Now, Satan was arguing this in the context of going to test Job, trying to get Job to curse God, and it didn't work. But this is what we see in the sailors. They're desperate to save the ship and thereby save their lives. Notice within letter C, the sailors reacted spiritually with prayer, spiritually with prayer. Now, here's where we see some greater application and tying in to Jonah. You, you, the, these sailors here, they manifest how natural man reacts to great threats and uncertainties. In verse 5, what do we read? The sailors in their fear each cried out to his God. Lowercase g. And multiple because his. Each one of them their own God. You see whenever a serious especially life-threatening crisis comes. Mankind looks to whatever God he holds to. It is in the midst of crisis. And these kinds of situations. Where the God of a person is revealed. And in the case of these sailors they have multiple gods. None of them being the one true God. The only one. And so though their prayers are empty and powerless to save them, this text reveals a universal reality for all people in the world. And it is this, that naturally man knows that there is a God. A deity. higher being. Because natural revelation makes it plain to everyone in the world, no matter where they are, that there is a God. Scripture says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Why? Because it's beyond doubt that there is. It's Beyond doubt that there is. Creation testifies of this. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. We could go on to the conscience of man, testifying of the law of God and standard of morality in all men. And so though many men may deny God or replace the true God with their own God of their own making... The reality is is that mankind is hardwired to the knowledge of God. But it's not enough knowledge to save. They need the gospel. But here's what I want you to see. Knowing of God and actually knowing God are entirely two different things. Many people know of God or about God. Even the one true God of Scripture. There are many who have sat in church all their life and know about the God of Scripture. But they do not know Him. It is not enough just to know about God. You must know Him. The sailors know about a God. They're not sure. They just know there's a God. But they don't know God. Worshipping some kind of lowercase g God other than the one true God is the great deception that humanity falls into. You read Isaiah 45 and listen to this passage. This is a great passage that communicates the truth. Of the one true God. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 20 through 22. Listen to this. Look at what the one true God says. In verse number 20, 20 of verse chapter 45 of Isaiah, he says Assemble yourselves, come and draw near together, you survivors of the nation. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. That's what these sailors are doing. They're praying to a God who cannot save. Declare, present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Verse 22, he says to them, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. Look to me, the one true God, he calls out to the nations. It was this verse that God used to convert Charles Spurgeon many, many years ago. The verse that urged him to look to God, the one true God. You see, millions throughout this world pray to false gods, just like these sailors. They are doing all they can spiritually, but ultimately fail because their gods are false and non-existent. And so in all of this reaction of the sailors, they're desperate to save the ship. They're desperate to save their lives. But where's Jonah? Where is Jonah in this scene? Where is he? What's he doing? The one prophet who knows the one true God in the ship, where's he at? Notice with me, number three, we see the inattention of the sleeper. The inattention of the sleeper. And I want to point out a couple of things about Jonah here, his carelessness. Jonah, the first thing I want you to see is that he is careless about his own self, his own life, spiritually and physically. In verse 5, we see another but transition. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah got comfortable down there, and he went to sleep. And it was a deep sleep. Many commentators say it was almost like a hypnotic sleep. This, the same root here for the sleep is used in Genesis 2.21 for the sleep given to Adam when God took the rib from Adam to make woman. He fell into a deep sleep. It's the same word used here for Jonah. He's in a very deep sleep. When we think about how could Jonah stay asleep through such a storm? Maybe he's exhausted from the journey. Perhaps more likely, it was the extreme emotional exhaustion and depression that is inevitable when a person directly rebels against the revealed will of the Lord. You understand that Jonah's sleep is more of a distraction, a way of escaping the reality of his disobedience and what's happening on the sea. His sleep was not because he's, oh, I trust God, he's, he's, he's with me through the storm. He's not got that kind of a peaceful sleep. Like Jesus, you know, on the boat, sitting in the back of the ship, disciples afraid everything's going to go down, and, and Jesus is sleep. Jesus... He was asleep because he was in control of it all. Jesus gets up and calms the storm, but Jonah, he's caused it. He's caused the storm. Jonah doesn't, he's not sleeping because everything's going to be all right. He's sleeping as a means of showing his carelessness and avoidance of this reality that's happening in his life. His sleep in this terrible storm reveals his carelessness about his own life, both spiritually and physically, and that is a dangerous place to be, Christian. But not only that, let B. be, notice this, that Jonah is also careless about these Gentile sinners. Obviously, if Jonah's careless about his own life, why is he going to care much about the guys with him? Right? After all, what was really the underlying reason Jonah's on the run? He don't want to go to the Gentiles. He doesn't want to go to them. To proclaim them. He has disdain for the Gentiles, especially the Ninevites. And yet it is through the Gentiles we see a great lesson in this text. In verse 6, notice this. The captain came and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? In other words, what are you doing down here asleep? We're all about to die. Why are you down here asleep? And here's what he says. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. What a rebuke this is to the prophet of the one true God. We see the heathen man rebuking the Hebrew. A pagan calling on God's prophet to pray. Everybody's praying but the one man who can pray. Jonah. And here's a lesson for all of us. It is a terrible thing when unbelievers must call believers to spiritual action. Believe it or not, it happens a lot. This is what rebellion and disobedience will do to a person. Jonah was far more than physically asleep. Jonah was spiritually asleep. How many Christians are just like Jonah? They seem to be at peace and all going fine in the world for them. Yet they are spiritually asleep Living in rebellion, distant from their God, running from Him in one way or another. You understand? Don't, mist- don't mistake peace in your life for having peace with God. Things might appear to be going okay, but that does not mean that you're right with God. You understand this is what's going on with Jonah. Jonah was at peace, fine to sleep enough, but he was not right with God. He was spiritually asleep. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul urges the church, So then let us not sleep as do others, but let us keep awake and be sober. You see, the sailors here, they're praying to gods who do not exist. What is Jonah's calling? It is to preach the true God to Nineveh, the pagans. What you find with this story is that Jonah... He really has a prime evangelistic opportunity before him to preach the one true God to pagans who are nearing their grave. But in his rebellion, he can't bring himself to do that because it's all his fault to begin with. Nevertheless, he forsakes the opportunity. Here's a, here's a an account that I think is very fitting and interesting. I remember reading this account when I went to the Titanic Museum in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I'll share it with you. It's fascinating. In 1912, Chicago's famous Moody Church called a man named John Harper to be their pastor. John Harper was a Baptist evangelist from Scotland. He was a widower and a father. He had a six-year-old daughter. And with his six-year-old daughter and her cousin, he boarded the Titanic to come to America. Survivors of that event tell the account of his, his story, how that after the ship struck the iceberg and began sinking, he put his daughter on a lifeboat, and I'm assuming her cousin, she wasn't mentioned, but I'm assuming she's with him. And he worked staying on the ship, calling women and children to get in the lifeboat and specifically calling out to all those who are unsaved, trying to significantly emphasize those who don't know Christ, get on the boat. So he continues there. And with the lifeboats being gone, Harper preached the gospel to those who remained on that sinking ship. He gave his life jacket to another man and then jumped in the water and clung to a piece of floating wreckage. The numbness of the hypothermia took hold of Harper. With his teeth chattering and his body shaking and shivering, Harper saw a man floating nearby and called out, Man, are you saved? The stranger said, No, I'm not. Harper shared the gospel with that man who then professed faith in Christ. A short time later, this new believer was pulled from the water by a passing lifeboat and lived to tell the story. John Harper was never found after all the wreckage in the boat, but he used the sinking of the Titanic as an opportunity to preach the gospel. Jonah has a great opportunity here to preach the one true God. But instead of seizing an opportunity, he doesn't do anything. What does he do at this point? He does nothing. He doesn't even respond to him. He doesn't even talk to this captain. He doesn't talk to the sailors. He doesn't even respond to them. He could have been like John Harper and and preached the true God. Or the Apostle Paul who comforted the people in his shipwreck. About the God of sovereignty and, and their voyage. Perhaps the captain waking Jonah up saying, Arise, struck a nerve with Jonah. What what was the first word of Jonah from God? Arise, go to Nineveh. You see, when a believer is walking in unrepentance, they are miserable. Jonah's in a miserable state. And Christian, when you decide you're going to walk away from God and do your own thing, if you're truly saved, you're going to be in a miserable state. It's an uncomfortable thing. Just ask David from Psalm 32, "The Lord's hand was heavy on him. Jonah is a miserable man. It's only going to get worse. But here's what I want to point out to you tonight today. Number four: I know this is more than my usual points, right? Hang in there. I'm almost done. I want you to see the application for the saints. There's three applications I want to bring to your mind and your heart from this short little passage. Number one is this we must see the high cost of disobedience because we too easily downgrade that in our minds. We must see the high cost of disobedience. What did Jonah's disobedience cause? The disciplinary hand of God. The divine intervention was directly aimed at Jonah. And do you understand that when we as God's people decide to disobey, when we decide to live however we please in our flesh, we invite the disciplinary hand of God upon ourselves. You're inviting God. Bring it on. Chastise me. When you and your pride run away from Him. Proverbs 15.10, Solomon writes, There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Discipline, understand, is always painful for us. Because here's the reality. You get to choose what sins you indulge in, but you don't get to choose the consequences. You do not get to choose your punishment. You do not get to choose how God brings disciplinary action upon you. See, Jonah shows us that once we have resolved to sin against God and go our own way, any one of us can act in some of the most surprising of ways in our flesh. Because he doesn't care about his rebellion and how it threatens the lives of these men. And this brings another aspect to the danger of disobedience, the high cost of it. Your sins, they do not only affect you, they affect others around you that you love. Amen. Sin never just affects you only. It always has a, a, a ripple effect on other people. What's we, what do we see with Jonah? He's putting the lives of other sailors at risk as well as his own. Let us never think that our sins are isolated. What you do affects you and those you love. You remember the sin of a man named Achan in Joshua 7? decided he would willfully and directly rebel against the Lord, and his sin brought punishment not only on him, but also on his own family. So don't think that when you decide you're going to live as a drunk, that, doesn't, that only affects you, it doesn't affect anybody else. Don't think that when you decide to commit adultery that, well, that's just between me and this person, it's not going to affect anybody else. Don't think that throwing away your life gambling or, or indulging in pornography which is probably the, the, the most, most isolated sin that people justify. Don't think that all of these things are just about you. And, well, if God judges me, they will impact your family and your friends. Maybe even your church family. Sin is not isolated. Christians in sin do not realize how their sin is impacting other people around them physically and spiritually. Our lives impact others one way or another. Romans 14, 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. We must see the high cost of sin. That's application number one. Number two, application, we must know that all discipline is purposeful. Purposeful. You see, God ordains all discipline with an expected end. It is for his glory and ultimately for our good too. You see, this storm that's brought upon Jonah, it is a correction. Why? Because God corrects his children. Let me read to you a passage here that will communicate this real briefly. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. Notice what he says to these Christians. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for what? For our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What do you learn from this that applies directly to Jonah in each of our lives? Who does God discipline? Only his own children. If you don't get discipline, you're not his child. He disciplines his children. Why does he discipline his children? Because he loves them. Discipline flows from love, not anger, love. Love. Every time I have to correct my own children or bring discipline on them, I emphasize to them, I do this because I love you. Love. Love is what seeks the right path for those whom you love. And that is what God is doing for Jonah. So understand this, that the life of the Christian is to be obedient life, fulfilling his purposes in, purposes in us. And when we go astray like any good parent, God issues his correction. God loves Jonah in this story. It may not look like it on the outside. God loves him. And that's the reason he's chastising him. He had to be corrected. So if you endure correction, understand that it flows from the purposeful hand of God who loves you and is trying to get you on the right track. But lastly, let her see one thing I want to point out to us is that we today, by way of application, we need to awake from spiritual sleep. I look at the church in America today, and she's sleeping. She's spiritually sleeping. Spiritual sleep is seen in many ways. Disobedience is one of the plain ones. We see it in Jonah, what it caused Jonah to do and not to do. It made him careless, it made him callous, it made him comfortable. And you understand, you look at the direction of Jonah, you look at the damage from Jonah, you look at the danger in Jonah's life, sin is costing a lot. It's time for Jonah to wake up. But the same could be said of the church today in a lot of ways. You understand the pagan world around us is perishing, calling on their false gods, living in their sin, while the church is fast asleep who knows the true God and says nothing about it. The church, by and large, is disobedient to God's commission to us to go to the nations and give them the gospel, including our own. Our nation needs the gospel. Our community right here in Van Buren needs Jesus. Your neighbors need Jesus. Your family needs Jesus. We too easily slough off these responsibilities given to us. Sinners are perishing, and we have the answer. We have been spiritually asleep. Romans 13, 11 through 14. Last verse I'll give you. Paul says to the church here, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to what? Wake out of sleep. They weren't taking a nap. He's talking about a spiritual reality. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know how I can see that the church is asleep? Because they engage in a lot of these activities. And think it's no big deal. We've got to wake up. We need the Lord to wake us up, to bring revival to us, so that we can be obedient to His own commission given to us. So, Jonah has experienced in this text a divine intervention. I hope you see that his sin is careless and it is costly. He has put himself and others in danger. He is asleep in his spiritual state, and we must learn from Jonah, lest divine intervention come in our own life. So I challenge us today as we think on this text, what about you, Christian? Are you like Jonah in your heart? God ain't called you to Nineveh, but there's a lot of things he's called you to do. Are you like Jonah in your heart today? Careless, cold, callous, distant, Are you disregarding the word of God for your life? Maybe you're like these pagans who don't know the one true God today. Maybe you have an idea of God. Maybe you know about God, but you never really have come to know him. My prayer today is that if you're a Christian and you're spiritually asleep, you'd wake up and obey and follow God with all of your heart. And if you're not a Christian and you don't know God, that today would be the day you see your sin for what it is. And Christ as the Savior alone who can save you. That you, as God said through Isaiah, look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. Look to him. Let us stand to our feet as we close in song. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you, Lord, for this word and this text Father, so much of this text easily hits home in our lives and our hearts. For we are naturally prone to run the opposite direction. Our flesh is constantly pulling towards the world away from you, away from your word. I don't know the condition of the hearts or the lives of people in this room. I only know my own. It's my prayer, Father, that you would work in us as you see fit that you would awaken us, Father, from spiritual sleep to be obedient, holy people unto you. If there's one soul in here that does not know Christ, I pray that you bring conviction over them. Make known the gravity of their sin, the judgment they're worthy of and headed towards, and that Christ alone is their Savior. Bring them to faith as only you can. We pray it in Jesus' name.